Take a Bible. If you want to get a head start, you can find Psalm 19. It's going to be the first passage that we look at together tonight. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the Bible, and we've spent... Uh, from the beginning of the year up through spring break. We had a weather night, so we're here one week on this side of spring break. We're talking about the doctrine of Scripture. What is it that we believe about the Bible? These are the things that we've covered. The Bible is inspired by God. It is inerrant in content. Uh, We've talked about the perspicuity of Scripture. That means the clarity of God's Word, the authority that God's Word has over us, the necessity of God's Word, the sufficiency of the power, the unity, and tonight we're going to talk about the beauty of God's Word. Of all those doctrines, this is the the slice of the doctrine of the Bible that has not been written about as much as the others. There's a lot of stuff written about inspiration and inerrancy and authority and sufficiency. This is a really important thing to understand about the Scriptures, but it's just not something that a lot of people have given a lot of thought to. You'll find some things, you'll hear some messages, you'll find some sections in systematic theologies, but not just a lot. After tonight, we'll pivot just a little bit, and starting next week through the end uh, of our Wednesday nights this spring, we're going to talk about hermeneutics, which is a fancy theological word for how do you interpret the Bible? How do you actually approach this book and make sense of what it says? So, to start tonight, we're talking about the beauty of the Bible. I want to tell you how I came to be a world-class art connoisseur. In the fall of 1996, I made my grand appearance at Amarillo High School. The very first class that I walked into at Amarillo High School, which, by the way, I don't want the rest of this story to mislead you, is not a rough, dangerous school, was art. It's the first class that I walked into. You have no idea what to expect when you're walking into high school for the very first time. You've heard all sorts of stories, and some of them scare you, and some of them you think, well, they're probably just putting me on. So I walk into art, first period, first day. I did not know walking into that art class. This was a a cross-section of freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, all grades in this art class. The administration at Amarillo High had made a decision that year. They had a whole bunch of knucklehead kids. And they said, we're going to try to group them together as much as we can throughout the day. And so in this art class of 20, 30 people, there is a high concentration of unsavory individuals. And then in walks sweet little old me into that mix. And from the very first day, things are being thrown at the teacher. Things are being said to the teacher that I didn't know you were supposed to say to teachers or allowed to say to teachers. People are assaulting each other in class. People are trying to assault the teacher in class. And this went on for about a week. And I'm telling you, I was a little bit terrified. I'm not embarrassed to admit that. I thought, what in the world? Have I gone to a prison camp or what is going on? We made it about a week with Lord of the Flies in art class. And the principal walked in the next week and he said, this is a failed experiment. We're taking you out of the art room. We're putting you all into a classroom with desks. We're giving you an art history textbook. You will sit in the seat with your nose in the book and you will read it for the rest of the semester. That's why I can't draw anything today. Public school system totally failed me, but 
I'm a great world-class art connoisseur and a master of all things art history. You know I'm joking, but what I want to talk to you about is something relating to the field of art, okay? Something that relates to the field of aesthetics and beauty. There's a debate amongst people who like art, whatever form of art it is that you like, about the nature of beauty. And the debate, one of the debates is, is beauty in art an objective thing or is it a subjective thing? Meaning, is beauty something that we can all sort of collectively agree on and say that is beautiful or is it really ultimately only a matter of personal preference? Is beauty all in the eye of the beholder. I would acknowledge that there's room for preference and well, I like this better than this or I like that better than this. I would also say, and not everyone would agree with me, you don't have to agree with me, that's all right. But I would say that there is an objective nature to beauty in the world. I think it's part of being created in God's image that God, the creator, created a beautiful cosmos. And he created us in his image, which means we have the capacity to appreciate beauty. And I think there is such a thing as objective beauty. And you may not agree with me, but I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. Let's pretend. Don't get your phone out, but let's just pretend that we're on Instagram and you see these two landscapes. They both have sand. They both have brown things sticking up out of the sand with varying amounts of green things on the top. One has more water than the other, but they both have blue in the sky. It's the same sky. But most of you, if I was asking you based on those two pictures to pick your next family vacation, would say, I'm going to the beach. That's prettier than what you put up on the other thing, which is what I saw when I drove to church tonight, okay? <laughs> Let me give you another example. Let's talk about cars. Now look, look. What I don't need is any of you to be smart Alex, and tell me how much you want a 1985 Dodge Caravan, okay? You can say, oh, but I've got a bunch of kids and I can't fit them in that Porsche and no, no, no. Okay, stop, stop with that. That's not, I'm not talking about function, this is not a debate about function. This is a debate about beauty. And if I sent you on vacation by yourself to that beach and you're checking in at the dollar renter car place and they say, look, we got two cars. It's just you by yourself on the beach for the week. You can have the Porsche or you can have the 1985 caravan. I know what you're going to take. One is not beautiful. One may not be your favorite car, but when you look at that, you can say that one's beautiful, one's attractive, one's pleasing, and the other one's not. Let's talk about food. Why do so many Americans like the Food Network? You don't get to smell the food. You don't get to taste the food. You try to cook it in your own house, and it doesn't taste as good as it looked on the show. 
but we watch it because there is something visually pleasing about someone who is skilled making a, a dish, presenting a meal. And we talk about it's not just got to taste good, but we care about the presentation value. And that's what you get when you watch TV. You don't get to taste it. You don't get to smell it. You don't get to touch it. You just get to look at it. But in looking at it, you can say, well, that's a beautiful whatever the dish is that's being prepared. Let's talk about Snapchat. Some of you know what Snapchat is. Some of you don't know what Snapchat is. Snapchat's the thing you put on your phone if you've got little kids and you're trying to keep them quiet in a restaurant or a grocery store or something, and you pull the filters up, and your kid holds it up, and it makes them into a dragon, or it makes a rainbow come out of their mouth, or it makes whatever, makes your kid look funny, and it buys you five minutes of sanity so your kid's not doing whatever, okay? But is that the only reason that we have Snapchat filters? Because I see an awful lot of people that get on Snapchat and they use the filter that makes them look 10 years younger. And it smooths out their wrinkles and it changes the color of their hair or it makes them look a certain way and it puts little sparkles all around their face and there's little hearts over here. And I look at those pictures and I think, you don't look like that when I see you at church on Sundays. Well, what are you doing, right? We want something to make us look a certain way. It's because while, yes, we might disagree on some of the particulars, there is an objective reality to beauty in this world. That's an important claim to make when we're talking about the beauty of the Bible. Because what we're not saying is, well, as Christian people, we think that this book is beautiful, And people of other faiths certainly think that their book is beautiful. That's not the claim that I'm making. I'm making the claim this book is uniquely beautiful compared to all books that have ever been written, compared to any other religious texts. This is a uniquely beautiful book. And I want to show you that from inside of this book, and then I want to talk about that with you and think about what it might mean for us and how it might apply to our lives. So we'll start with a quote from John Wesley. Wesley, this was right before he died. He said, I'm a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. You remember what we read from Isaiah? Men are like grass. Their glory is like the flower of the fields. It's here one day, it's gone the next day. Okay, I'm a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. A few months hence, and I am no more seen. Remember, this is the end of his life. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended. That means he's humbled himself. He's lowered himself to teach the way. And he's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book. Those are the words of a man facing eternity, looking back on the brief arrow the brief day of his life saying that book is a beautiful book so what does the bible say about its own beauty look with me at psalm 19 we've spent a lot of time talking about verse 1 to 6 so we've talked about inspiration and revelation and things like that look with me at verse 7 and let's just read down to verse 11 David says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You just notice the adjectives that he used. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. It's more valuable than a, a pile of gold. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. And in keeping these commandments, in keeping God's word, there is great reward. I know that nowhere in there does he say it's beautiful. But I think if you were to have a conversation with David and you were to talk about this passage and say, David, do you believe that the word of God is beautiful? I think he would say, have you ever read Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19? I, I, I said it right there. I maybe didn't use the word that you're using, but that's what he's saying. Look at Psalm 119. Tried to jump the gun there just a second ago. Psalm 119. Look at verse 16. Psalmist says, I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Look what he says in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He believed that when he would open this book, he would find wonderful, amazing things. Look at verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. He doesn't want to look at something that's worthless. He wants to fix his eyes on something that's worthy, something that's beautiful. Look at verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me, we read this in Psalm 19, than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Look at verse 96. He says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. There's no limit to the beauty of God's word. It's a boundless treasure. It's an endless treasure. It's beautiful. Flip over one book and look at Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, we'll read the first nine verses. You see a lot of this sort of talk in the book of Proverbs, so this is just one example. Proverbs 4, 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. And he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. And as you're reading this, you say, well, this doesn't sound like the Bible. This sounds like just a dad talking to his son. Yes, but he's, notice the words he's using. He's talking about precepts and instruction and 
teaching. And then he starts to use the, the words that you find in Psalm 119. You know, almost every verse in Psalm 119 references the word of God. But there's a number of different terms used. Precepts, instruction, your word, your commandment. And he uses some of those here. He begins to talk about, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. He's talking about wisdom to be found in God's word. She will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place your head on a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. You can work backwards in that passage and and see the logic of it. If you want to end up at the end of your life with a beautiful crown, one of honor and dignity and obedience, one that reflects the glory of God, you've got to keep the instruction. You've got to listen to the words. You've got to live the commandments. You've got to have a life rooted in the word of God. And the end result of that, the book of Proverbs says, is that you will have this beautiful crown that marks your life in the end. Look in the New Testament. We'll read First Peter. Peter's quoting the book of Isaiah that we read earlier. 1 Peter 1, verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's an important part of this passage. It says you've been born again, so you're Your soul has been purified. Your life is now marked by obedience to the truth and sincere brotherly love. It it stems from a pure heart. Left to yourself, you don't have a pure heart. But when God works the miracle of regeneration in your life, he takes out your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And it was through the living in the abiding word of God, for, and this is where he quotes Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You know as well as I do that in a worldly sense, beauty tends to go in and out of style. Sometimes you see an old picture of an old house or old picture of somebody 20, 30, 40 years ago and the things that you're wearing and you look at that and you say, hey, you really put that on. You let somebody take your picture with that on. You really hung that on the wall of your house. How about that? That's something else. And all the pictures we take today and post on Instagram with our star filters, our kids will look at that and say, what was the matter with you? What are you doing? That's embarrassing. There's one beauty that never comes and goes in and out of style. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. It is an enduring beauty. Now, beyond just citing verses, let me 
share some thoughts with you. What are we talking about uh, when we say that the Bible is beautiful? How do we see that? I'm going to give you a few things to, to chew on here. Number one, the Bible contains beautiful diversity. Now, last week, we talked about the unity of Scripture. So if you think I'm contradicting that, you can just go back and reference that. Yes, there is a unity to the Bible, but there is also a beautiful diversity. Here's something you'll find if you study world religions. Most world religions have a scripture, a a sacred text of some kind. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, those sacred texts are written by one individual, a singular person. And they're written in a singular style. It's just sort of straightforward. One guy put it down. This is what it is. It's all a story or it's all sort of in Proverbs or it's all sort of like the book of Psalms. And there's just sort of a monotony to it. You don't find that when you come to the Bible, which is why the task of interpreting the Bible is sometimes tricky. Because in the Bible, you find a lot of different genres of writing. You find historical narrative. You find law and covenant You find proverb and promise. You find prophecy. You find apocalypse, which is not the same as prophecy. You find gospels. It's not the same as a biography. It's a gospel. We're going to talk about that. You find uh, letters that people wrote to other people. You find all sorts of different genres in the Bible. And this book's written over thousands and thousands of years by dozens of different people. And in that diversity, there is one consistent truth about who God is and who we are and how a person can have a right relationship with God. There is beautiful, beautiful diversity. Burt Parsons, a pastor in Florida, says it like this. The metaphors of Scripture, and when he uses the word metaphors, he's talking about the different types of writing in the Bible. The metaphors of Scripture reveal to us Scripture's own comprehensive beauty. But more than that, they reveal the beauty of our gracious God who relates to us, condescends to us, and speaks to us in words that we can understand. There's a lot of our doctrine of Scripture in that quote. Inspiration's in there. Perspicuity's in there, right? But what I want you to see is that there is a beauty, and it's a comprehensive beauty with all these different parts brought together. Westminster Catechism, question four. How does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and their purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. And I think the authors of the catechism really are talking about the beauty of scripture, that it is a self-attesting beauty. When you read this book, you come away noting its beauty. Secondly, the Bible contains beautiful literature. Beautiful literature. I'll just mention two examples. And when I mention a specific example, there's almost the implication that these parts I'm about to mention are really beautiful and the rest is not that beautiful. That's not my implication. I'm just mentioning two examples of the beauty of the literature of the Bible. How about the book of Esther? Corey just walked us through the book of Esther not long ago. It is a beautiful book. Brooke and I had friends in college uh, who were Asian. 
They were from Taiwan, and some of them were from Korea. And several of them were taking a, a literature class, Eastern literature class, and they were reading some of the Old Testament in that class, and they had not grown up in church. They'd not been exposed to the Bible. Uh, I'm not even sure that before we had a conversation, they knew that what they were reading was in the Bible. They just knew, hey, in English class, we read the book of Esther. Have you ever read that book? I said, yeah, we've, we've read that book. And I remember them saying, that's the best story I've ever read in my life. They didn't believe the Bible was God's word. They did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. But they read that book and they came away saying, that's a remarkable story. That's a beautiful story. I think you could say the same thing about the Gospel of John. We've been walking through John for a couple of years now. We're getting close to the end. We're going to finish up in the next couple of weeks. I think the greatest frustration I have is we've worked through the Gospel of John as I found myself saying, there's so many things that I want to point out about the writing of this book, the, the structure of it, the cross-references in it, the, uh, the way that it's set up, the, the way that John says one thing and he really means two things at the exact same time. There's so many examples that I, 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 every week I find myself saying, I can't say everything that I want to say. It's not a literature class on Sunday morning. It's a sermon. So we can't just get in and, and it only be a literary discussion. It's a remarkable, remarkable piece of writing when you dig in and you study. The Bible contains beautiful literature. The Bible contains beautiful ethics. Ethics. I am fully aware that many people in our society would throw a full-on conniption fit to hear me say that. And they would think that that's a caveman, Neanderthal, hateful, racist, sexist, all the other ist type statements you can tack onto it. But I'm telling you that it's true. Um, the Bible contains beautiful ethics. Uh, in my personal Bible reading right now, I'm in the Pentateuch. And I'm in the part of the Pentateuch that most of us get bored with. And there's some really important principles and laws that God laid down for his people in that book. There's a beauty there if you have a, a heart to receive it and if you have eyes to see it. Um, I think about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is not written to tell you how to be a wise, good, righteous person so that you can go to heaven someday. That's not the point of the book of Proverbs. We all know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a gift that we receive from God. But the Bible lays out for us how life really does work best. And the book of Proverbs is not promising you, if you do this, it's magic. The book of Proverbs is not saying to you, if you do this, it's like a mathematical equation, you get the perfect outcome on the other side. Because the book of Proverbs is bracketed in the wisdom literature with Job and Ecclesiastes. It's not just Proverbs. But in Proverbs, what I'm saying to you is that the Bible lays out for you in a beautiful way, this is how life works best. God designed you and he designed life and he knows how it works best and he knows how it all falls apart. And if you do this, you'll find that this is how God designed the world to work. When you live in that ethic, there's a beauty to it and it's really 
It's really undeniable. I talked with somebody recently who was living against it. And he was just completely broken in frustration. Things weren't going right. This is happening. I feel turmoil in my soul. Everything I try to do falls right on its face. And I try to talk to God and I feel like my prayers are bouncing right back at me off the ceiling. I didn't want to tell him, be a good person and God will love you. But I wanted to say to him, and we talked about, look, you're not living according to God's design for how you ought to be living. It's never going to work. You're always going to face this frustration. There's a beauty to the ethics of the Bible. Next, the Bible contains beautiful poetry. Beautiful poetry. I want you to take your Bible and go to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1. Without much commentary, I just want to read some of the poetry in the book of Psalms that, again, not is extra beautiful, but that is just, is beautiful. It's undeniable, the beauty of it. Just look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you look at Psalm 23? I know that many of you have it memorized, but let's just read it out of the text. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look at Psalm 32. We'll read the first five verses. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity 
of my sin. Look at Psalm 73. I want to read the end of it with you. Psalm 73 is my favorite psalm, and the end is the best part. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Just a few more. Look at Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Maybe tonight you could look at Psalm 150. Look, you read these psalms, these poems, these songs. There is beauty to be found there. Next, the Bible contains beautiful prophecy. Prophecy. And in particular, what I have in mind here are messianic prophecies. Prophecies about Jesus. And when I think about this, and I think about the beauty of this, I'm, I'm reminded of Corey Tim Boom. Many of you know who she is. You know her story uh, and her experience. If you don't, you should, you should read about her. Look her up on the internet. Find the books about her life. She's a remarkable woman. She used to talk about the suffering in her life, and she would take this needlepoint. She would just hold it up. It's always the same one. She would hold up the backside and show people all the messy strings and the chaos, and it just looked like a third grader did it or something like that. Or like whoever did that got kicked out of freshman art, or they, they don't know what they're doing, whatever. And then she'd turn it around, and she'd say, this is sort of the, the suffering in my life, but this is the outcome, and this is what God has been doing through that in my life. And I think it's a fitting uh, illustration for her points, for her purposes. It's also a fitting illustration of Old Testament messianic prophecies. We're not going to look at these. We don't have time to look at these. Look, you look at all of these. This is just a sampling in the Old Testament. We're trying to think about who the Messiah is. He's going to crush a serpent. He's going to bring blessing to the world. He's a lion. He's a lamb. He's a star. He's a prophet. He's from David. He's a shepherd from Melchizedek, the cornerstone, virgin born, but he's God. The stump of Jesse, the suffering servant from Bethlehem, he's a king who rides a donkey. And you look at that, and it looks like the backside of the cross point, the needle point. And then you flip it around, and you see it in light of Jesus, and you say, that's a beautiful thing. How could it have all come together that way? It looked so chaotic and contradictory, and then it all just came together 
in exactly the right way. There's a beauty in these prophecies. Last, the Bible contains beautiful honesty. Honesty. This may be a little bit counterintuitive to you, but one of the objective realities of beauty is that there is some real correspondence to real life, okay? If you want to understand what I'm talking about, explain to me why none of these movies that were on Hallmark a few months ago, none of them, not a single one, was nominated for an Academy Award. Some of you say, but I like those movies. Well, there's a value in them in escapism into some sort of fantasy land, but it's not real. There's nothing real about those movies. And I'm not saying you should feel bad or embarrassed about watching them because guys have all sorts of movies that we watch that are not real and their escapism and all the rest of it. I'm just saying there's no beauty, no true objective beauty in a movie like this. Maybe it has escapism value, but there's no objective beauty in it because it doesn't correspond to reality. You watch it and you say, well, wouldn't it be nice if life was like that? But it's not like that. That's not how it goes. By contrast, the Bible is very honest about human depravity. There's things that you read in the Bible that you come away saying, that's in the Bible? I thought he said this was a beautiful book. That's a horrific book. The Bible's honest about sin and depravity, the ugliness of it, the horror of it, and the consequences that come from our sin. And on first glance, you read those parts and you may not think that they're beautiful, but in the fact that they are true and they are real and they correspond with reality and they resonate with our lived experience as human beings, there's a beauty in all of that. So how do we apply this to our lives? Number one, we should be eager to read the word of God. We should be eager to read it. I'll let you read the Piper quote here. The more you read, the more you see the beauty of God's word. Secondly, we should be eager to sing the word of God. We should be eager to sing it. All of these are coming from Psalm 119, by the way. You know as well as I do, human beings are hardwired to sing about things that we think are beautiful. People do it all over the world about all sorts of things. They think money's beautiful. They think drugs are beautiful. They think women or men are beautiful. We sing about those things. People just do it instinctively, naturally. No one has to tell them to do it. They just do it. And if you and I believe that there is a unique beauty in the scriptures, it should certainly be something that we want to sing about. The largest book in the Bible is a song book, and the largest chapter in the song book is about the book. We should be eager to sing it. Thirdly, we should be eager to meditate on it. I think it's worth just asking ourselves tonight, what is it that we reflect on in our idle moments? What is it that our mind tends to go to? Maybe we flip that and say, what is it that our mind goes to in our anxious, busy, fretful moments? I think in both of those cases, you could say our mind tends to go to things that we think are supremely valuable, supremely important. That's where we tend to go, and it, it can be a revealer of what is really important in our hearts. We might give the right answer externally, but where does your mind go in an idle moment? Where does your mind go in a stressful moment? If we believe that this book is a beautiful, a uniquely beautiful book, certainly our mind ought to go towards this book in our idle moments and in our anxious moments. We're going to end with prayer. You join me 
and uh, prayer will dismiss us this evening. Lord, we just stop as your people to marvel at the fact that you have condescended to speak to us. You've given us a book, and it's a true book. It's a powerful book. It's a living book. The main things that we need to know from this book are clear. You've not tried to hide them from us. Lord, this book is a necessity. We cannot go without it. We need it. And it's sufficient. It's up to the task. It can do what you intend for it to do in our lives. It accomplishes your purpose. There's a unity to this book. It it says one consistent thing about you and about us and about salvation. And Lord, tonight we just stop to thank you that it's a beautiful book. You could have done all of these things in a utilitarian way. You could have done all of these things in just a merely functional way. Uh, But you've done it with beauty, with glory, and we're thankful for that. We marvel at it. It's a gift. Lord, we pray that your word uh, would be always on our minds, always on our hearts, always on our tongues, whether we're speaking or singing. Lord, we want to be people of the book. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.